Queen Victoria, and welcome to Murder Lab Podcast, the podcast that doesn't talk about just one serial killer, but all serial killers and something they have in common. For example, this is part three of the Murder Lab series, where I discuss people who had a building or room in their house where they tortured and killed people. I've already spoken about H.H. Holmes, Fred and Rosemary West, Gary Heidnick and Mark Dutroux in parts one and two. So in today's episode, I will talk about Jerry Brudos and Michael Lupo. So we'll jump into Jerry Brudos now. Now uh, I'll start off with my references. So that includes The Shoe Fetish Slayer by Jack Rosewood, Lust Killer by Anne Rule, Serial Killers and Psychopaths by John Marlowe and Charlotte Grieg, Serial Killers, Time Life Books, Chambers of Horror by John Marlowe, The Killer Book of Serial Killers by Tom and Michael Philbin, The Serial Killer Files by Harold Schechter, and Between Good and Evil by Roger DePew. Now, the two of the, the first two I mentioned, The Shoe Fetish Slayer and Lust Killer, are bo- those books are primarily just about Brutos. All the other ones that I mentioned, um, they're just kind of mentioned in a section of the book. The dates of the murders were January 26th, 1968 to April 7th, 1969. There are four verified deaths, and this happened primarily in Portland, Oregon. A quick background of the time period. This was when, like, 2001 Space Odyssey came out. Oliver the Musical, which if you're not familiar with it, it is awesome. The song Hey Jude was popular, the movie Planet of the Apes was out, and Rosemary's Baby, which just so happens to be one of my favorite movies. The first Big Mac went on sale. 60 Minutes aired for the first time. Helen Keller died. The Zodiac Killer was rampant. It was the year of the first successful heart transplant. The 911 service started, and the first ATM was used. In bigger news, Vietnam was going on. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and so was Robert Kennedy. Nixon got elected, and it was the dawn of the age of television. So all of this stuff was, it's the first time everything was really televised and everyone could kind of uh, experience everything together, and it was a whole new level of shits happening. So that's just something to keep in mind while we talk about Jerry Brudos, because his stuff was happening in the midst of all this other stuff. So he was 30 when he was caught. His particular murder lab was his garage, and we'll get, of course, into that more later. I will start with um, important information. I try to primarily focus on the aspect of their lives of the theme of the show. So I try not to delve too far into things and make it about their whole lives and just focus on this one aspect. But stuff that happened in his childhood were very elemental in what led to this, so I figure... We'll take a minute and talk about that. So a big thing was his mom wanted a daughter. She already had one son. And when Jerry came out and was a boy, needless to say, she was disappointed. And she let him know often. So when he was five, he was playing at the dump, I guess, as some kids do. And he found some high heels. He thought they were pretty sweet. So he took them home and was wearing them around. So she saw him and completely freaked out and set them on fire. It is an extreme reaction, But in her defense, I was thinking she couldn't just throw them away because obviously if he found them at the dump, he's not averse to digging in trash. So she burnt them. Now, I will say the way that she burnt them and 
treated him about it was very over the top. And unfortunately, this helped cause him to have a fetish for women's shoes that developed into something darker. Now, soon after, he tried to steal his teacher's shoes in kindergarten. When she found out, she didn't scold him. She was just kind of puzzled. Like, I don't really understand why this, you know, six-year-old kid, five or six-year-old kid wants my shoes. But, you know, everybody moved forward. Well, a couple other ways that his mom messed with him is when he got older and he had certain dreams that males tend to have when they're about that age, she would make him hand wash his sheets and basically just made him feel like shit about it. And then he went to the army for a while. When he came home to live with them again, she made him live in the shed. So needless to say, he felt pretty alienated by his mom. And I'm not saying that everything that he did in his life was his mom's fault, but she did curate those feelings of alienation and she was the main female in influence she had on his life, so she didn't really set the best example for him. And by saying that she wanted a girl and he puts on women's shoes and then she reacts violently to it, she's basically sending mixed signals to a child in a pivotal developmental time. It seems he became fascinated with this taboo idea of women's clothes and it started with shoes, but then it developed into underwear and, as we'll see, it'll escalate from there. And since it was forbidden, stealing eventually became part of that ritual. So from the ages of like 8 to 12, his interest grew from shoes to underwear. Uh, at 16, he started to steal the neighbor girl's underwear. Uh, they reported the theft to the police. So he thought he'd be coy and he pretended to be a cop. He went over to the girl's house and was like, hey, you know, I'm like a junior investigator or something for that. I'm working with the police station. And uh, I, you know, I think I can help you with your panty ordeal. So he invited her over and she's like, okay, whatever. So while she's in his room, he leaves. And then she's standing in his room, hanging out. Someone comes in with a mask on, puts a knife to her throat and forces her to strip. Takes pictures of her, runs off. Then... Jerry comes running in the room, panting, and he's, you know, oh my God, someone just locked me up and, you know, and then I just, I just got out right now. What happened? Is everything okay? But, uh, I mean, it was pretty obvious he was the one that actually was pulled a knife and stuff, but she just kind of let it go um, for whatever reason. At age 17, he dug a hole in a hillside and decided he wanted to hide a girl in it. He took a girl at knife point, beat her, and forced her to remove her clothes. Apparently, though, he didn't move far enough away from where people would be walking by. And this couple was just strolling by, and they saw him doing this, this, doing this to this poor girl. He tried to say something like, there was another dude here that was actually assaulting her, and I came in to try to help. But no one really believed him, and the cops came. So they wound up finding a collection of shoes that he had stolen. Stolen panties and pics of that neighbor girl. So he got sent to a hospital. Uh, apparently it was the same hospital as in the Cuckoo's Nest movie. While he was at the hospital, he told them about a fantasy he had of freezing women so he can arrange their stiff bodies into pornographic poses. The psychiatric assessment revolved around revenge and hatred of women and his mom. Which is a big surprise that he might wind up hating his mom. A little detail that uh, Seinfeld fans such as myself will enjoy is there is a comment that he also drew 
pictures of naked Lois Lane just in heels. And I'm sure his response was, those pictures were private. While in the hospital, he also talked about this dream torture complex that he would like to have. And as described in Lust Killer by Ann Rule, he wanted to find some place he could set up an underground butcher shop. It would have cells where he could keep his captives and a huge freezer room. When he had it all ready, he would take a bus and go out and round up pretty girls and bring them back to his torture complex. He would choose from ones he w- which ones he wanted for his pleasure. He would shoot them and stab them and beat them and play with them sexually, and no one would be able to find out. When he had them, he would take pictures of them for his collection. When he was finally done with them, he would take them into his freezer room and freeze them in the positions he wanted so he could keep them forever. It goes on to say that he knew that there was some impracticalities with this idea. But, you know, it's a fantasy. That's the whole point of a fantasy. As you know, there might not be practical. But, you know, it's still nice to fantasize. By the age of 21, he started to follow women and take their shoes. So he'd just be walking down the street. He'd see someone and, you know, think those shoes, you know, I think I, think I want those shoes. I kind of want to sleep with those shoes and masturbate into those shoes. Like, that seems like a thing that I would like to do. So instead of maybe asking nicely, where'd you get your shoes? Or, you know, can I get your shoes? He would choke them until they became unconscious, and then he'd just take their shoes and run away. So there you go. That's one way to do it, I guess. Uh, I prefer to just ask for them for Christmas myself. He would also steal from clotheslines, break into houses, and he would... First, he would masturbate over them. Then it escalated to where he would actually assault them as well. In 1962, at age 23, he married 17-year-old Ralphine Darcy Metzler. There were some sources that said her last name was Leone, but most of them seemed to say Metzler. And um, even though her name was Ralphine, she went by Darcy. So you'll see Dar- you will see Darcy in most uh, references. So Darcy was 17. She was kind of naive. And it was pretty easy for him to get a hold on her. So he forced her to do housework nude, except for wearing high-heeled shoes. He absolutely would not let her come to the basement. And sometimes he would take pictures of her in these stolen undies. Of course, she didn't know that they were stolen. He never let on that fact. So she went along with it for a while until she became pregnant and they had a kid. So she was like, look, I I don't want to do nude housework with our little baby around. You know, she's getting older. That triggered him to start breaking in and actually raping women. So that was his escalation to not just breaking in and taking their stuff and masturbating over them or anything. That's when he actually started to rape. He used to have migraines as a kid and they began to come back in 1967. So he started getting these really bad migraines and blackouts. What seemed to help him is to prowl the streets and steal shoes and panties. That same year, Darcy wouldn't let him into the room when their son Jason was born. She had some idea that it wasn't, she didn't want him in the room. It felt improper to have him in the room when that was happening. But he had really built up in his mind wanting to be part of his son's life and wanting to be part of that whole thing. 
So when she didn't let him in the room, that was another trigger for him where he went and stole underwears, underwears, <laughs> underwear and and things like that. So obviously, again, I'm not saying that it's Darcy's fault that he went out and did that. Obviously, he was using stealing underwear, raping women, wearing underwear as a way of feeling like he had control in his life during moments when he wasn't in control. So with the migraines, with feeling disconnected from his wife, the way that he could feel like he had some kind of control in his life was to go and get control over another woman and take her stuff. So that's uh, that was his way of dealing with it. To make it clear, I'm not saying wearing women's underwear is a bad thing. If that's your thing, that's fine. It's when you get to the point that you're stealing it. You know, that's when it starts to get kind of bad. Things are really escalated. And on January 26th, 1968, so he was living in Portland at the time with Darcy and his kids. He's in his yard, just hanging out, when he sees this pretty young woman walking through the neighborhood looking confused. So he was like, hmm, this is an interesting opportunity here. He starts talking to her and she's like, hey, you know, I'm selling encyclopedias. I was supposed to meet someone on this street. I can't, I don't know what the numbers of the house were. My paper was smudged or whatever. So he's like, oh, come on in. I'm interested. You know, so he takes her inside. He's like, let's go to the basement because my mom and daughter are upstairs and I don't want to bother them. So he invites her in. So she sits on a stool. He hits her on the head with a two by four and then chokes her. Meanwhile, the mom and daughter are upstairs. So he goes upstairs and he's like, hey, why don't you go out for some burgers? Here's some money. Get on out of here. Well, then his uh, friend happens to stop by. Jerry is totally excited because he just did the spontaneous thing. It's the first time he's ever done anything quite like this. I mean, he just killed a woman. And he basically is like, to him, it was like, I have this amazing toy downstairs that I really want to play with. And all these people are getting in my way. So then the buddy comes in and he convinces the buddy, hey, I'm doing something with chemicals in the basement. So it's important that you go. I really need to go pay attention to that. So he shoots, scoots. He doesn't shoot him. He scoots him. Scoots him off. So he's got rid of all the distract distractions. What he does is he undresses her and he redresses her. So basically she became like his his dolly. So he started to dress her and undress her. He puts her in some of the different underwear and undergarments that he found or that he had stolen and had in his collection. Then uh, he hears his mom and daughter come back. So he goes upstairs and he has a beer, hangs out for a little bit. And he goes back downstairs and he decides, you know, I think that I would like to have one of her feet. As you might do in this circumstance, I guess. So he cuts off her left foot. And as a side note, the reason he chose her left foot is because he's right-handed. Just a tidbit there. So it cuts off her left foot, puts her shoe on it, and then sticks it in the freezer. Trophy number one. He actually continues to do the dressing and undressing of the body for several days. Eventually, he ties it to part of an engine and puts it in, in the corpse in the Willamette River. <laughs> Willamette River. When he disposed of the body, he actually pretended to have a flat tire. So if a cop was going by... 
it wouldn't look suspicious that he was parked on the bridge. After he disposed of her body, he still kept the foot, and he would take it out of the freezer every once in a while and masturbate of it. But then it started to rot, and he got rid of it too. He threw it in the river as well. It's important to note that this first victim was not premeditated. He did not rape the body, and he did not rape her while she was alive. So there was no necrophilia, there was no rape, and they actually never found her body. At this point in my research, I got real frustrated because I found most sources were saying that he took Linda to the basement. But then two sources, including the one with Harold Schechter, said he took her to a garage. I know it seems like kind of a small detail, but it's a little, I don't know, it's just irritating because is it the basement of the garage? It's a little different. I did a little more digging to try to see if I could find a definite answer, if that's possible. It seems that in the spring of 1968 is when he moved into the house with the garage connected by the breezeway, which means since Linda was killed in January of 1968, it would have been in the house they had with a basement. So he took her to the basement and killed her there. It's his later victims that he will take to the garage, and the garage becomes his murder lab. So in spring of 1968, he moved into his house with his garage. That seems to be the best answer that I can find. Uh, if anybody can find anything that proves that wrong, please let me know. But that seems to be the most definitive thing that I could find that makes sense. Now, when they moved to the house with the garage, he made that his place. He was super excited about having his own place, whereas before... Um, he would use the basement for doing his man stuffs. Now he's like, oh, I've got this garage. So he quickly put a padlock on the door. He got a large freezer and he installed an intercom. He told his wife it was a dark room. So it was very important she didn't come in and out and ruin his film development. He had a bunch of rules for his wife about keeping out of the garage. So he installed that intercom. Like I said, they had a freezer so Darcy would be like, well, hey, what if I just want to go out to the freezer and get something for dinner? And he's like, hey, you don't need to do that. You can tell me what you want and I'll get it for you. And she's like, yeah, well, it's kind of easier if I can just go snoop around because maybe I don't know exactly what I want. I want to look and see what looks the best. And he's like, no, that's not a thing. So you have to tell me what you want. And he also didn't want her up in the attic he claimed that there were mice and rats, because uh, he knew that scared her. So apparently that's where he kept boxes of shoes and bras and slips. He did not want her to find them. He also didn't want her to have friends over, and he just constantly had her checking with him about things because he had to know where she was at all times, because he had become a killer. He actually did have naked pictures of women that he had developed, and she did happen upon them at one point. Apparently, one day he actually did leave the door to his dark room open. So she happened to walk in there and she sees these pictures of naked ladies. And she's like, "What? what is this? So his excuse was, oh, a college student asked me to develop these pictures for him. You know, if it's going to bother you, I won't, I won't do this for him anymore. 
in January in 1986. He had moved to this new house and had this garage that he could use. So in on November 26, 1968, he sees Jan Whitney broken down on I-5. He saw a couple guys with her. Uh, apparently, he thought they looked like hippies. And he felt like, mm, I think uh, I think I'm going to intervene and see if maybe I can take control of the situation and get her back to my house. So he offers to give the guys a ride. All three get in the car. He drops the guys off somewhere, takes the girl back to his house, and then he claims he can't get into his house, so they'll have to wait for his wife. He gets in the car and sits behind her and was telling her about this game where it's funny to ask someone to close their eyes and try to explain how to tie a shoe without using your hands to show how, just to describe it. He told her that she had to turn her head around and look toward the front and tell him what to do without moving her hands. So she starts describing it. And as she's describing it, he took a mailman's leather strap, made a loop over her head, and pulled it tight around her throat. He opened the rear car door and put his end of the strap through it and closed it. She was pulled back and bent backward over the seat. She didn't move. She couldn't move. He went in the house to make sure that his wife wasn't home. And when he came back, she was dead. He said he turned her around on the seat and had sex with her body from the rear. After that, he hung her from a meat hook in the garage, and he went off for Thanksgiving weekend. In the meantime, a car was driving near his house, lost control, and hit the garage. It left a crack. So the cops came, and they investigated, but nothing really looked too damaged or anything, and no one was answering the door, so they left a card and said to call us when the homeowner gets home. Jerry gets home, sees the card, hides the body. Uh, he disposes of it. Um, he gets home, sees the co- cop's card on the door. He calls the cops and talks to them, and, you know, no big deal. But the thing is, if they would have just looked through that crack and done, you know, looked a little deeper, they would have seen her body. But it's it's just one of those things where who's going to really think that there's a body hanging in the garage? So in the meantime, her car was found at a rest stop on I-5. It was locked and there was no damage inside or out. There was no blood or sign of struggle and no keys. Later, they found her body in the Williamette River tied to a piece of iron from the railroad. So his first first victim he had no actual cent- sexual encounter with, whether before or after death. This one, he actually performed necrophilia several times. And whereas he had taken the foot of the first victim, on the second victim, he actually took her breast. When he was in, on trial, he said that she was with him about 20 minutes before she died. What did he do with the breast? He turned it into a paperweight. So Darcy actually found it. And it was round and heavy, a few inches in diameter, and seemed to be made of some kind of plastic that looked kind of like a woman's breast. And she asked Jerry what it is, and he's like, oh, I just thought I'd make a paperweight. And she's like, well, it looks like a breast. And he's like, no, it's just a, it's a joke. It's, you know, and she said it looks so real. And he's like, well, it didn't work. I put too much hardener on in the, in the plastener, 
hardener in the plastic. So this actually became one of his focuses, is he wanted to make a good paperweight from a breast. So that's trophy number two. So a few more months go by, and 19-year-old Karen Sprinker, who was a freshman at Oregon State, was home for spring break in Salem. She failed to meet Mom on March 27th. They were going to go shopping together. She was last seen in the parking lot. They found her car in the garage of a department store. No evidence of foul play, just like with Jan Whitney. Uh, they did notice that there was a stairwell with a heavy, dro- heavy door, so if something happened and the door shut, it would drown in any cries, so people might not hear anything. Some witnesses said they saw a man dressed as a woman. What happened to Karen is he was in the parking garage, he saw her, liked the look of her, decided that he was going to take her with him. He abducted her at gunpoint, took her back home to his garage. He did not kill her right away. This time he raped her. He had her model clothes. He hoisted her with a noose and ate dinner with his family. So while he's eating dinner with his family, the poor girl dies. He comes in. This time he takes both breasts and again tries his paperweight experiment. Then he threw her into the Long Tom River. She was eventually found by police divers on May 10th. Her body was weighed down with the head of a six-cylinder engine lashed to her body with nylon cord and copper wiring. There was red mechanic cloth tied to the engine head. She died of traumatic asphyxiation. Something interesting they found was that her cotton bra was replaced by a waist-length black bra too big for her. She was a 34A or B, but this bra was a 38D. It was filled with lumps of brown paper, and they discovered she had no breasts. Again, we'll look at the escalation of first victim, foot taken, second victim, one breast, third victim, both breasts. And this time, Jerry said that he was with Karen about an hour before he killed her. He had abducted Karen on March 27th, and then on April 21st, he decided he wanted to try again with someone else. So he attacked 24-year-old Sharon Wood in a parking garage. This time, however, she fought, and he ended up running away. The next day, since he was unsuccessful, he had tried to take a 15-year-old girl, but she got away. So then he tried to abduct a 12-year-old girl named Gloria Smith, On her way to school, he had a fake gun with her, but she ended up seeing a woman in her garden and she ran off and went to the woman, so he was foiled again. He was not going to give up until he was successful again. A couple days later, he was successful. On April 23rd, Linda Sally, 22-year-old, was last seen in a parking lot. She worked at Consolidated Freightways office and she had gone shopping for her boyfriend. She was supposed to meet him at the pool that he worked. She failed to meet her boyfriend, and she didn't show up for work the next day, which was unlike her. As with the other victims, her car was found in the parking garage, locked, and there was no struggle. What he had done is approached her in the parking lot, flashed a fake badge at her, and accused her of theft. Gets her in the car and takes her home, ties her up in the garage. Goes and has dinner, because apparently kidnapping and murder and torture and rape doesn't affect his appetite. 
goes and has dinner. He comes back and found out she had removed her ropes, but she was just sitting there, which baffled him. But uh, there's a theory that maybe she was still kind of paralyzed by fear. And even though she had managed to get out of the ropes, I don't know, maybe she had just kind of given up or she maybe she realized, OK, if maybe I can get him to still let me free. I don't know. But of course, Jerry did not let her go free. He tied her up again and suspended her from the ceiling. He undressed her and took picture of her. At some point, he raped her. He used a leather strap with a knot in it, put it around her throat, and pulled it tight. After death, he applied electric shocks to her ribcage to see if he could make the body jump. So this is an even further escalation where now he's messing around with the body and seeing you know, conducting an experiment on it to see if it would jump. So he's going even further with it. Her body was found in the Long Tom River by a fisherman. She had been tied to an auto transmission with nylon cord and copper wire. There was reddish fabric like a mechanic's cloth caught in her bonds. The cause of death was traumatic asphyxiation, and she even had the ligature marks around her neck. There were two needle marks on her ribcage, where until they apprehended Jerry and got the explanation, it was quite a mystery. Like his previous victim, he kept her for about an hour before he killed her. The reason he did not take her breasts is he said he didn't like her nipples. At this point, the cops noticed that he seemed to take women from areas covered by different police agencies. So Linda Slauson was in Portland. Jan Whitney was the Oregon State and Lynn County Sheriff Department. Karen was the city of Salem, and Linda Sally was in Portland. The cops started to figure that maybe he tracked his victims, and he started they started questioning co-eds at Oregon State. They find out that three women had received calls from a guy who said he was a Vietnam vet. And he would do the thing where he would call and say, hey, is Linda there? Hey, is Mary there? You know, kind of using generic or not generic, but common names. So then whenever there was a girl that came on the phone like, oh, yeah, this is Sally. Then he would start chatting them up and he would claim that he wanted to have, quote, coke and conversation. So I guess that was his version of Netflix and chill. They're going to have coke and conversation. He said his name was Jerry. They went out for coffee, and he actually brought up the dead girls that were found in the river. He was 30-ish. He had red hair and freckles. He was six feet and pudgy. The cops had a report of a similar description of a man that tried to abduct two girls. So when the cops spoke to this woman that had met him, they said, hey, if he calls again, agree to meet him. We promise we'll be there. We won't let him get near you. You'll be totally fine. So he does call her again. And she says, hey, meet me downstairs in like an hour. He shows up and there are cops standing there. So he cops kind of chat with him. and He's real relaxed. Like there's nothing to lose. He told him, told him his name was Jerry Brudos. And uh, obviously they didn't have anything to hold him on. So they let him go ahead and leave. So then they look him up and they see that he has a record of sexual assault. They decided to go to Jerry's home and speak to him. So he actually invites them in 
and has them look around the garage. So they see all these knots. He has got knots. He's got a hook in the ceiling. And they notice that these knots and there's twisted wire and it looks similar to what's on the corpses, what, you know, what they were buried or weighed down with. He sees them looking at the knots and he's like, hey, you seem to admire that. Why don't you just go ahead and take it? So this dude had some balls on him. He totally did not think they had anything on him. He was like, whatever, just go ahead and take it. So gave him the knots. And then they basically left thinking, okay, I'm pretty sure we got a guy. Let's do some more digging. So they put a trail on him. They keep doing their footwork. And he starts to get the sense that cops are closing in. He takes his family and runs for the Canadian border. The cops are trailing him. So they see, okay, it looks like dude's trying to run. So they pull him over and arrest him for armed assault on the 12-year-old. That 12-year-old had actually identified him in a picture. So this time they actually had something that they could hold him on. So he was arrested on May 25th, 1969. He confessed to killing Whitney, Sprinker, and Sally. When the cops did more digging into the garage, they found there was a hook in the workshop ceiling. There was a 30-foot, 3-16th-inch rope and come-along to winch an object upward. There was a leather postal strap with a cinch. There was more nylon cord. There was a vice and a locked tool chest. There were hundreds of keys, including a key ring and a brown case bearing numerous keys that seemed to be for cars and for house locks. This is from uh, Lust Killer. The searchers observed full scuba gear and fins and reloading equipment for ammunition. They found a chest full of women's shoes, including spike patent leather heels, other high heels, and a pair of low-laced shoes. There were ashes in a green plastic wastebasket that looked to be the residue of burned film or photographs. They went up to the attic, where most of Jerry Brudos's collection was. There were 40 pairs of high-heeled shoes in all sizes from 4 to 10. White shoes, brown shoes, red shoes, calf, suede, straw, patent leather, open-toed sandals, pumps. All of them slightly worn, and some of them curved to the shape of their original owner's feet. And, of course, there were soft piles of undergarments stolen by, Bru- stolen by Brudos over the years... All the thefts managed when Brutus Compulsion scripted him. They found 15 brassiers, fancy brawls of lace and satin and sheer black nylon, and more utilitarian brawls of cotton. They ranged in size from 30A to 38D. Some still smelled faintly of perfume, some were freshly laundered. There were lacy slips and panties. There were dozens of girdles, all of them small-sized. In the living room, criminalist Pinnock ran his hands along a high shelf over the fireplace. He touched an object and lifted it down. It was a metal mold formed in an exact replica of a female breast. The breast was full and perfectly shaped. It was too perfect to have been fashioned from clay. It was real. They looked at a dim corner of the shop and saw, on a bench there, another breast mold. This breast was small, and it had obviously come from a different source than the lush mold in the living room. It looked real, too. Resin had coated human flesh and taken on its form. The toolbox lock was forced open. There were tools in the lower portion of it. In the upper right-hand drawer, there was a thick packet of pictures. Pinnock lifted them out carefully. Oh, my God. The investigators saw the glassy black-and-white shots, the pinups of a madman. Jan Whitney and Karen Sprinker, helpless in the lens of their captor. They actually found a picture where you could see his reflection in it. So he couldn't really claim, like, oh, those pictures just happened to be there. He obviously was there in the room with that victim. Jerry Brudos once compared women 
to a candy wrapper, that they're nothing more than an object. Quote, Once you're done with them, you just discard them. Why would you not discard them? You don't have any more use for them. Unquote. Jerry Brudos got life. He ended up dying in 2006 of liver cancer at age 67. His nicknames include the Shoe Fetish Slayer and the Lust Killer. And now it's time for Michael Lupo. His full name is actually Michele De Marco Lupo. He's Italian, so when you first see it, it looks like it's Michelle De Marco Lupo. But it makes sense when I heard people pronounce it and they said Michele. It makes sense because he's Italian. It's Michele De Marco Lupo. So he, um, he later goes by Michael Lupo. Michael Lupo. It's fun to say. I don't know. I had quite a few references on this one. This one was particularly frustrating because it was really hard to find information. So normally I could at least find one book. Like Mark Dutroux, I was able to find one book written about him. Um, normally you can find five or six. In this case, I found... References to him in Serial Killer Magazine, issue number 10, the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, the book Human Monsters, the Serial Killer Files, found a little bit in there. And then I had, went on, I looked online and I found a couple YouTube videos. Then in my searches, I found a few podcasts about him, including Adventures of Murderland, True Crime Enthusiast, All Killer No Filla. And then I just found bits and pieces on different websites which I will list on my website page. So if you can go to my references page, I'll have the full list because there's like a dozen. So I'll just list them all out there for you. The dates of the murders were March through May of 1986. So it was just three month period before he was caught. The number of deaths were four murders and two attempted murders. It happened in London. So an interesting thing happened when I was doing research for Michael Lupo. The way I had caught his name was through my preliminary research when I was looking through the serial killer encyclopedias. And, uh, you know, his name was mentioned and there's a blurb. Each of them seemed to mention a torture chamber. So I put him on, on my list under the category of murder lab. And I was like, well, I'll come back to him later and find out the details. So obviously I decided to do this murder lab episode now. So I'm like, OK, now I'll cover Michael Lupo. So as I start researching... It was aggravating because you cannot find shit about him. It was really fucking hard. So I, like I said, I dug through a bunch of things. Um, I noticed on a couple of the podcasts, they also complained that it was really hard to find information about him. And what was really particularly frustrating is that as I did read more about it and found a little more information, he didn't actually kill people in his torture chamber. I think it's important to note that technically he does not belong in this episode of Murder Lab podcast, because he did not have a true murder lab. But I did all this footwork, so we're going to go ahead and talk about him. And I think it's also important to point out that just because you read a little blurb about some someone, a serial killer or anything, don't just completely take it as completely true. So when you see Torture Chamber, it's titillating, it's exciting, but that doesn't mean that he actually killed people there. So there's this whole other level. See, and there's another level because he was gay. So this was during a time period, it was 1986. And in the 80s, it was AIDS had just become like a big new epidemic. And 
the culture was different. So people had, I mean, people still have their own prejudices, you know, obviously in ignorance. Um, but back then it was even worse. There, there tended to be a bad connection between cops and homosexuals. So if the cops go in and they find shackles and whips in a homosexual's house, they were more likely to be like, okay, this guy's depraved. He's obviously he's a killer. He, you know, and, and so this is his torture chamber instead of being like, oh, this is his sexy bedroom. He's got some S&M stuff going on. All right. You know, whatever. It was torture chamber. So that's what people latched on to. As we'll get into, it was more like he was just into S&M. There was no proof that he killed anyone in the house. There was no proof that he did anything like that, that he would kill them and torture them and blah, blah, blah. So it's frustrating that in my just preliminary research that things would say torture chamber when maybe it was technically a torture chamber, but really it was more like sexiness. So it was sexy chamber. It wasn't, you know, it was consensual. It wasn't like he just grabbed people and took them in there. They were all agreeing adults. So it's really frustrating that they took this and blew it up like that. And granted, I'm not saying that he didn't do something bad. So I'm not saying, oh, no, he's innocent. He was just like sexy S&M, whatever. I'm saying that is a level that he did not actually go to. Now, he went to other things that were really incredibly terrible. So we'll get to that. That's what was bad. But it just really frustrates me that they went down that path and, and attached them, him to that when it wasn't really like that. It's said that dates often left with bruises, incisions, bloody noses, and strangle marks... But we don't know if that was non-consensual. So most likely it was part of the whole S&M treatment that people were paying for. He did claim to have 4,000 lovers, so he was busy. Until 1986, when he was diagnosed with HIV. And he got pissed off. On March 15th, 37-year-old railway guard James Burns was found by vagrants in a derelict flat in Kensington. They found his body in a basement. He had been mutilated with a razor, sodomized, and smeared with feces. His tongue had been bitten off. His chest cavity was slashed, and his scrotum was split open. The consensus is that he was strangled with a silk stock, one source said he took the sock with him, and another said it was stuffed down his throat and he was posed in a degrading position. I'm thinking he had to have left it there in some capacity, because how else would the sources know that it was a silk sock? Another note is some sources call him Alex Casson, like at MurderUK.com and LGTBArchive.uk, in the Serial Killers Files by Paul Simpson... That's when he mentioned sources call him James Burns. So basically what happened is as I was reading, some things would say Alex Cass and some things would say James Burns like they were different people. So by the time I got to the serial killer files by Paul Simpson and he said, hey, you know, some people say Alex Casson, they call him James Burns. So then when I went back and read, all of the details for Alex Casson are the same as James Burns. So apparently that is the same exact person. And apparently his real name was James Burns and not Alex Casson. I don't know. The thing that I could think of is sometimes when people are writing, they don't want to use the victim's real name. So they come up with a pseudonym, you know, different name for it. So 
I'm wondering if maybe that was a case is, you know, or maybe it was just some misinformation somewhere. So, but we do know that there was a 37-year-old railway guard that was violated in such manners and killed. Now, how they met is Burns went to a pub called the Colhern and was picked up by Lupo. Incidentally, this is the same pub as Colin Ireland and Dennis Nilsson went to to get victims and hang out. So if you're not familiar with Colin Ireland and Dennis Nilsson, I will be, be mentioning them in other episodes, but as always, feel free to go research them yourselves. Supposedly, it was also visited by Freddie Mercury, Rupert Everett, and Anthony Perkins. I did see in one thing where they called Michael Lupo Freddie Mercury's lover, and that feels a little sensationalistic. And I was like, where the hell did they get that detail? Unless there's some, like, Freddie Mercury bio out there that mentions it, and I've never read anything about Freddie Mercury, really, so I don't know. But uh, you would think that would pop up in my research, though, if he was known to be a lover of Freddie Mercury. I don't know. But then later, in another podcast, someone said that the tavern was visited by Freddie Mercury. So then I thought, oh, well, maybe they just used logic like, oh, well, Freddie Mercury went there. He probably fucked Michael Lupo. Of course. You know, I don't know. That just seems like maybe that's a thing to me that they made up. But if somebody knows for sure, let me know. The problem is no one saw Lupo and Burns together. And there was no other association to link them, so he was not a suspect in the case. On April 6th, a body was found by kids playing in a workman's hut near a railway embankment. It was 24-year-old Tony Connolly. He had been strangled, sodomized, chest slashed, mutilated with his scrotum open, and covered in poop. A few sources said that he was strangled with a sock... One said he was strangled with his own scarf. Another said he took the ligature with him when he left. One podcast said an attempt was made to bite off Connolly's penis. So I don't know. So some say socks, some say scarf. Some say they just took his stuff with him. And then one, one podcast, one reference said that an attempt was made to bite off his penis. Since one podcast said that, one thing said it, I'm doubting that's true. Because something like biting off someone's penis is a detail I'm pretty sure people would have latched on if it were true. So I doubt that's true. Really don't know if he actually was strangled with a sock or scarf. I guess it doesn't ultimately, ultimately matter. It's, in a way, it would be more satisfying to know. Satisfying might not be the right word, but it would give a better sense of closure if you could say, oh, he always strangled with a sock. That was like his thing. But ultimately, he strangled the guy. It turns out that Connolly shared an apartment with a gay man that was HIV positive. So, again, talking about the ignorance of that time period, HIV was new and it took a long time to get people to understand how HIV could be um, transferred and, and such. So they refused to examine the body until they tested him for HIV. So what happened is this delayed an autopsy, which delayed examination and caused even more tension with the cops and homosexual community because basically justice was being delayed. And the longer you just let a body sit there, you know, it's not like details will be fresh and new for you to use. On April 18th, there was an unidentified 62-year-old man strangled near Hungerford Bridge. Here's another case of some said this and some said that. Most sources say the elderly tramp passed him on the bridge 
and asked him for a cigarette. Apparently he was anti-tobacco, so that could have set him off, I guess. Like, he was pissed off, like, how can you like tobacco? I can't believe you'd ask me for that. That's an evil thing. So then he'd freak out. Another another said that he asked for change. Others didn't really mention that he said anything other than Lupo lost his shit and kicked him. It killed him. Well, he did kick him. Lupo himself did say that something inside him snapped. He kicked the man on the groin, strangled him, and dumped him in the river. And I quote, Something inside me was screaming at the world. This was a case where the murder was not sexually driven. He didn't take the time to defile the body like he did with the others. This was the only murder that happened this way. The next day, he attacked Mark Leyland. On April 19th, they went to a public restroom for sex, but Leyland changed his mind, so Lupo got pissed off and attacked him with an iron bar. Thankfully, Leyland got away, and later when he went to the cops, he did claim that Lupo was trying to mug him because, again, at that time period, they didn't really want to announce, well, hey, you know, I was going to the bathroom to have sex with this guy, and he tried to kill me because they would not want to look into it because basically they would think, you know, victim blaming, like they would think, well, you shouldn't have been going to the restroom for sex and you shouldn't be gay. So basically that didn't go anywhere, even though it was a thing. They just were like, meh, whatever. I don't know how this next one actually fits into the timeline. Some accounts say that this victim wasn't found until Lupo was caught and told them about it. Some accounts say that his body was found before that. But regardless, the fourth murder victim was Damien McCluskey, 22 years old, a hospital worker. On April 24, 1986, he was last seen alive in a Kensington tavern. His body was found strangled, raped, and mutilated with a razor in a basement flat. Two references said that McCluskey was known by Scotland Yard to be involved with the IRA. If you're not familiar with the IRA, I looked it up so I can tell you a little bit about it to give you an idea. The Irish Republican Army, also known as the Provisional Irish Republican Army, was an Irish Republican paramilitary organization that sought to end British rule in Northern Ireland, facilitate Irish reunification, and to bring about an independent republic encompassing all of Ireland. That seems like... I admit, when I first read that and was like, oh, he might be in the IRA? Okay. Like, that just seems like a detail that wouldn't fit. It just seems a little too, um, like, spy movie type thing and sensationalistic. But everything says that he was an Italian commando. So technically, if Lupo was in the military, I suppose it's possible that there could be someone in the IRA somewhere around in London at that time. So I guess it's not too off the wall to think that maybe he happened upon someone who was in the IRA. I don't know. Um, and supposedly Scar- Scotland Yard was upset when when the dude disappeared. I don't know. Regardless of whether the dude was involved in the IRA or not, he became a victim of Lupo. What finally got him caught was on May 7th, David Cole, a British rail worker, went to a park with Lupo. They did a popper together, which is amyl nitrate. And I'm sorry, but I got to uh, do the It's Always Sunny reference. And I wonder if they had the argument over who was going to be the popper person. Can I just be the popper person? (laughs) So they did this popper. And then Lupo tried to strangle him with a nylon stocking. Lupo sure knows how to ruin a mood. Um, One account did say that the sock was too short. So Lupo tried to use his hands to strangle him. I don't know. The bottom line is he strangled him and Cole got away. He went to the cops 
And the cops actually took him seriously because by that point they had found several bodies and they got to, you know, they were like, okay, this this actually sounds like it could be the same guy. So he agreed to go with them on May 15th to look at different pubs to find the killer. It took them five hours and they finally found him in the Prince of Wales pub. They got a warrant and that's when they found that quote unquote torture, torture chamber in his Kensington flat. Supposedly, he started, he was strolling around, casually, talk, casually talking about his victims. So at that point, he probably figured, I've got, you know, I'm HIV positive, I've got nothing to lose, so I'm just going to, you know, do whatever. Apparently, in that Kensington flat, they found identical silk socks as on some of the murder victims. They found crops, whips, vibrators, dildos, cuffs, ropes, studs, set of iron chains in the ceiling of the bed, above the bed. Again, other than those socks... The rest of the stuff has nothing to do with anything that he did to his victims. So that other stuff, I understand they're trying to make it sound like, oh my God, he had whips and he had cuffs and ropes and I think he even had some dildos in there. Oh my God. So like that, that's like, it's not a big deal. He didn't hurt people. Well, I mean, he didn't unconsensually hurt people with those things. So it just kind of irritates me that that stuff was brought up like, oh, he was, you know, so lurid, these lurid, lurid details of this evil guy. The things they should be focusing on is that he fucking chester slashed their chest open and opened their scrotums and rubbed them down with poop. That's what should be the focus. Apparently, he had also kept his flat in Chelsea, which he rented from an elderly woman. She thought he was nice. Cops found pictures and address books with 700 handwritten entries. When they called the numbers, the people claimed not to know him. And friends said that he was a name dro- dropper, but it was all talk. So we called some of these famous people, or we called some of the people in the book. If he really was doing, like, private S&M sessions with people and they were paying him for it, do you really think they're going to admit that they know him? Especially if it's, like, the cops calling? Are you really going to say that? So I think that's kind of bullshit. Um, I guess maybe it's... Some people would think that it's unlikely that he actually knew really famous people. So that's another detail that it's really hard to find. I was having trouble finding, like, hard... Sources said definitely like, oh, this person definitely knew him. And, you know, so the common thread seems to be he knew famous people. I'm thinking if he had all that money and he was that popular, I don't think that's too outlandish that maybe he knew some famous people or at least some local politicians and stuff like that. Um, And but so I don't know. That's a thing for that that I'm throwing out there for you. That's another detail that I'm not 100 percent sure whether he really did know famous people or if he was just a name dropper. But I lean towards he probably did know some shit that people didn't want other people to know. Now, when it came to trial, he hoped for insanity, but no one could find evidence. They had um, psychiatrists talk to him and stuff, and no one could find evidence. And while he was on trial, he said he got, quote unquote, a callish rationale. And he developed a burning hatred for other gays based on his HIV diagnosis. He remains a suspect in mutilation murders of gay men in Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, Hamburg, Los Angeles, and New York City. They all occurred while he was visiting. Nicknames include the Wolfman, as we stated, he enjoyed calling himself that, uh, the Silken Strangler, and the Wolfman of London. To recap, Michael Lupo, he really does not fit into the murder lab category. He did not actually take his victims to his quote-unquote torture chamber and kill them and but 
since I had seen Torture Chamber and everything preliminary research, then that's what made me put him on this list. And I decided, well, let's just go ahead and cover him. But please, in your brain, just remember, when you see Torture Chamber and Michael Lupo, that was just his side sexy business. What you really need to find deplorable about him was the chest-slashing, poop-smearing, genital-defacing maniac that he was. I mean, that's and that, that's a thing, is, is that you can tell when he mentioned that there was a part of him screaming at the world. I mean, holy shit. Obviously, he had a rage in him to, to defile the body in such ways. And they don't know. Um, nothing that I saw determined whether he would do that while they were still alive or not. And some cases they said that he would actually... I hate... This is one thing that I do definitely hate about this. Uh, where he would cut open the scrotum and he would take out their testicles and massage them. So hopefully they were dead when he did that. And and then the poop. I mean, he you can tell that he just had that raging blind hatred to cover someone in poop. And slashed your chest cavity and I mean he was obviously just in a frenzy when he did it and uh, well maybe he wasn't in a frenzy I don't know I guess he had to take the time to poop to before that's the question is that was another question someone raised like was it his poop was it someone else's was it the victims I mean I'm thinking that it was his I mean and this is what blows my mind this is what's frustrating is you don't know these answers these are the kind of questions that we don't know and I, I mean, did no one interview him in prison? How was this not a more interesting case? I don't know if it's, it was just covered up by everything else that happened or maybe people didn't really find it. Because it is disgusting, I can understand why maybe people aren't as likely to latch onto it as some other things that happened. But I mean, why didn't someone ask him, where is it? Why is it nowhere? They didn't say, hey, did you have a... Did you take a minute and poop did you did they have to wait while you built one up i don't know you eat a lot of chili and and you i don't know you pack it all in there and then you go out and get a guy and then you start killing them and then by the time you get the killing done then you've got it built up and you can poop and rub it on them do you poop beforehand and you bring it with you i don't know it's you know it's that's the kind of thing that kind of i would like to know i'm pretty sure there's other people out there that want to know what if he was killing and killing stimulated his bowels and then he had like poop rage and then it all came out? He got excited and had diarrhea. I don't know. I normally don't talk about feces this much. I normally don't care. I don't like it. I don't even like fart jokes very much. But in this case, it's rather fascinating that he that he had that involved. And while my mind initially just wants to pass over it, and I just was kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll just kind of mention that he slashed her chest open and the scrotum thing. I'm still not going to talk much about the scrotum thing because that just genuinely, I can't do it. But the poop thing, like now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, really? Like, I don't know. It just, uh, I mean, I understand the ramifications of it and that to him, he wanted to degrade gate and defile them. But when you stop and start thinking of the actual action, that's when it's actually, I don't know, it just... Uh, it kind of blows my mind. So, um, yeah, if anybody finds any information 
about that. I don't know. He, uh, what is that? Coprophilia? Coprophilia? Um, I don't know that I really want to look up a lot about that. But if anybody just happens to know about uh, if there are other things, other killers, even if they're not serial killers, other people that were like maybe serial poopers that, you know, like if they do it on demand, if they save it, you know, if anybody has any information, you don't have to give me lots of details. I'm just curious what that might involve. And it's probably a personal thing, but I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. So on that note, I'm going to stop. So this today we covered uh, Jerry Brudos, the shoe fetish slayer, and Michael Lupo. I really almost said the poop goblin, and uh, that's probably not. Well, the wolf man, the wolf man. Um, so there will be one more part in the four-part Murder Lab series. And next time... I will focus on Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, who are partners, and also David Parker Ray. So stay tuned for that. That will be coming soon. Thank you for tuning into Murder Lab. You can get more information at murderlabmedia.com.